Biblical prophecy and politics are two themes that are often considered contentious in our generation. And this evening, our text addresses both. Um, But friend, I would submit to you that the reason why why such themes are so, so riven with contention in the church is because they strike at the core of what you and I desire. They ask of us a question. What is it that you crave most? When you pray, thy kingdom come, what is it that you desire most? When you pray for the reformation of society, what really are you praying for? In one sense, it lays bare the heart, and it asks us in a very direct way, Do we really desire the glory of God and all that that means above everything else? The Word of God, of course, gives us God's promises with regard to the advance of the gospel in these prophetic passages of his Word. And they also give to us a very clear picture of what God would have us pray for with regard to the civil sphere and for all of society. It may be that the Lord guides us And it guides especially our hearts as we take up this portion that leads us to think in those themes. This evening you'll remember that we begin a text having left really the first section of this prophecy in chapter 1. Isaiah 1, we said before, was something of an introduction and you could even say a, a kind of thematic digest of the entirety of this prophecy. Uh, even to some extent, the very themes that we have given to us in chapter 1 uh, appear in precisely the same order that they come to us in the, in the entirety of this prophecy. And so when we come to chapter 2, you and I, we come to the, really the first section of the body of this prophecy. And in chapters 2 to 4, we encounter the first major section. Uh, chapters 2 to 4 constitute their own literary unit. It's a single, it's a single chapter, if you like, because it's really revolving around one theme. That theme is given to us expressly in the second verse of our text. The theme is the last days. Uh, Seven times in chapters two to four, you and I encounter either the last days or simply that day. The prophet is focused principally on that day. And obviously that begs the question, well, what day is he referring to? In those three chapters, this one single body of text, we find really three principal events. In our own text, verses 1 to 5, we have the engrafting of the nations. And then in verses 6 to the first verse of chapter 4, we see the nation state of Israel destroyed. And then the end of chapter 4 concludes with the reviving and the perpetuity of the Jewish and of the Gentile churches. All, says the prophet, occur on that day. It's all one day, according to Isaiah. And what we have to recognize, of course, is that this is a prophetic day. In other words, we're not looking <clears throat> excuse me, at a 24-hour span of time. We're looking at an epoch, an age. And really what Isaiah does here is something that that shouldn't be foreign to us. 
Uh, several times in the last two years, we've had time to consider the prophecy of Zechariah. And Zechariah does precisely the same thing as does Isaiah in our text. Uh, just to give you a number of examples. In chapter 12, Zechariah says that in that day, Christ will be crucified. That's chapter 12, 10, as well as 13, 1, and, and 13, 7. On that day, Jerusalem will be ruined, 14, 2. On that day as well, 14.8, the gospel will be advanced. That day as well, we'll see the Jews re-engrafted. And in 14.9 to 11 and 16, the prophet Zechariah tells us, on that day the Gentiles will be called. All, says Zechariah, will happen on that one day. <clears throat> now, Friend, it's important for us to see, first of all, that Isaiah and Zechariah are speaking about the selfsame day. But for our purposes, I want you to notice how Zechariah, in many ways, helps us understand what Isaiah is saying to us in our text this evening. It may be useful for you to turn in your copies of God's Word too, for a moment, Zechariah 14. Because as you see in Zechariah 14, specifically verses 6 and 7, the prophet says this about that day. <clears throat> that day that we'll see all of these things, the very things in part that Isaiah sees in Isaiah 2 to 4. The prophet there in, Isaiah, in Zechariah 14, 6 writes, In that day that the light shall not be dark, be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening it shall be light. Now, perhaps that doesn't illuminate us immediately um, with regard to our text this evening, but allow me to explain uh, just through the words of one commentator. George Hutchison writes, he says, During that whole tract of time, under the notion of one day, it will be unsettled and mixed as a dark day, until toward the evening of that day at which time it will be light. In other words, in Zechariah 14, 6-7, this one prophetic day will be a day of mixture. There will be night and day. And then toward the evening of that day, when one might expect that things will only and ever decline, then there will be surprising light. A friend, if we have that in front of us, we recognize what day then Isaiah and Zechariah both are referring to. It is that day that we would call the gospel age. That day between, that age between the first and the second advents of Christ. It is all of that time um, from the moment of Christ's incarnation to his second coming. It is the prophetic gospel day. In fact, that's how you and I are supposed to understand the New Testament writers when they themselves describe their lives as being in the last days or being in the end. They're not disappointed millennials. They're describing themselves as living in that one prophetic day that the prophets had already exhibited to them in the Word of God. Now, it's important for us to recognize as this is that one, one day, where exactly in Isaiah 2 do we find ourselves in that age? If you like, what part of the day are we looking at in Isaiah 2? Well, friend, I want you to notice very specifically that we're looking in these verses at that part of the day that Zechariah says, at the evening time it shall be light. 
He's looking at that part of the gospel age in which there is a surprising change. The nations are converted. Uh, Friend, this is a segment of that final, that prophetic day. A segment described in Revelation 20 as the rule of the saints. That you and I are supposed to understand as Christ's rule in his saints on earth. Revelation 20 verses 1 to 6. And before I go any further, friend, allow me to remind you that this is an earthly rule. This is not a synonym for, for celestial glory. Because at the end of that age, you remember, there is the battle of Gog and Magog. Satan is left loose once again to deceive the nations. And only after that do you have the second coming and the general judgment. Know the days that we're looking at in Isaiah 2, verses 2 to 4, are what we often call the millennium. At a moment when there is surprising light and Christ rules in his saints on earth, he rules over the nations in his church. That is what is in our text this evening. That is the part of the day that you and I take up. And so in verses 1 and 2 of our text, we have the church exalted on earth. In verse 3, we have the nation's new confession of adherence to God. And in verse 4, we have their policy of obedience and their blessing that is peace. And what this means then, friend, quite clearly, is that the prophecy sets before us the truth that one day the nations will submit to Christ. One day the nations will submit to Christ. And what the text gives to us are three things. It shows us first the instrument through which this will come. It shows us as well the instruction that the nations will receive from the Lord. And it also shows us how these nations will implement their policies. So take first of all the instrument by which the nations come to God. We're told, first of all, in the second verse, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established, exalted above the hills. We recognize, of course, first of all, that this is metaphor. Uh, Mount Zion, geographically speaking, is quite small, quite low in elevation, even compared to other, um, other mountains nearby. What the prophet is referring to is not Mount Zion geographically concerned, but to Mount Zion as it sets before us the idea of the Lord's house or temple. And that's given to us explicitly in verse 3. The mention of Mount Zion here is because there you had the temple of God. And then we're told this about Mount Zion. He says, out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And that even underscores further this focus. This is an exalted This is a preaching Zion. Friend, all of this is a metaphor for the church of God. And what we're told then in verse 2 and in verse 3 is that the nations will flow into the church. The church will be lifted high. And friend, what you and I are supposed to see here then is that the church is that instrument Christ deploys to draw the nations to himself. This the prophet varies decidedly sets before us. But I want to underscore what the prophet is not saying and what we should not be saying tonight ourselves. The church is not the efficient cause of the nation's conversions. In other words, it's not the church that affects these national transformations. 
She's but an instrument. Friend, you remember how the Father speaks of the Son. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He will set judgment in the earth, and the isles will wait for his law. Friend, it's so very important for me to underscore this evening that that the church is but an instrument deployed by God. It is God who has brought the nations to himself in his Son under the ministry of his Spirit. Friend, that's how the nations are converted to Christ. But I want you to notice, friend, even the nations themselves acknowledge that. It's a striking turn of phrase in verse 3. They go to the temple, but staggeringly, they go to the temple not to hear the church, but they go to the temple because they say, He will teach us. Isn't that striking? It should strike us. Yes, it is the church that is exalted, but it is the Son of God the Lord of glory who is king of nations, who the nations know will teach him there. But I do want to underscore this evening positively that the church is this instrument deployed by God to effect these conversions. And when I'm speaking of the church, you recognize I could, I could use the, the word church in any number of significations and in a biblical way. Church sometimes will refer to to what we would call a mystical body of believers. Just believers, those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ gathered together. Sometimes in the New Testament, the the word church is used that way. Other times, the word church is used to describe specifically what we would refer to as a ministerial church. That is a church of presbyters who possess power of the keys. So church is used in Matthew 18 and in Acts 15. So what church is principally in view in Isaiah 2? My friend, I'll just remind you that the prophet says that it is the word of God that is going forth out of Zion. It is the public proclamation of that word that you and I are to have to see that is central to this work of bringing the nations to himself. In other words, it is the ministerial rather than the mystical church, to use the phrases we've used before. And this stands to good reason, does it not? In Matthew 28, Christ says to his apostles, he says, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Now, friend, I would remind you that in that text, that is not given to the church mystically concerned. It's not given to all and everyone in the visible church. It's given specifically to the apostles and then to those who would also possess the prerogative, the calling, to baptize and to preach. What we're told here, friend, is that this, this ministerial church will be deployed by God to bring the nations to himself. In Romans 10, of course, the apostle reiterates that very point. How shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Now, friend, I'm highlighting this element of the text for a very basic reason. When it comes to the visible church today, 
when it comes to its use, its function in the economy of God, friends, so many have a very low view, both of the visible church and of its ministry. A text like ours this evening does not allow us to have such a view. Uh, Friend, we find in this text very clearly that, that it is through this church that the Lord God would bring the nations to Jesus Christ. And this text also reminds us that there is no rival and that there is no replacement in the economy of God according to God's decree for the church. On a very practical level, friend, this ought to make us in earnest, especially whenever we find, friend, pulpits closing, when we find so few going into the ministry, when preaching is diminishing. Friend, these things ought to be laid upon our hearts because the word of God teaches us here. These are the very means God is ordinarily pleased to use to convert nations to Christ. And what of that nation? What of that nation when those those things are eclipsed? The instrument here is the church of God, particularly the church as it's possessed of the power of the keys as it is preaching, the ministerial church. But secondly, friend, I want you to notice how the prophet shows us that the nations are instructed. In verse 3, the nations cry, Come, he will teach us of his ways. And we are not to limit this at all. Uh, Friend, when they're saying that they long to be taught of God, we're not supposed to recognize that they only long to be taught in a certain way or on certain themes of God. This is a profession of a desire for general obedience. In other words, they wish to be instructed by God in doctrine, in worship, and in conduct. And we see, friend, then then the scope of this desire is actually the same scope of what is given to us in the word of God. It is the law, the word of God, that they turn to, that they will be instructed out of. What you have here are the nations saying they long to be obedient in a holistic way to the Lord. But perhaps it's necessary for us to ask another question, and that is, who is speaking here? Who are the ones who are crying, come, come to the Lord? I suppose in one sense we could say that this this could be a private cry of individuals, masses out of nations, together going to God. But I'd submit to you, friend, that that's only in the text in a lesser sense, and only really by extension. Because what you have in this text, as as verse 4b shows us, is that those who are speaking this are those who actually have power to make policy. And even more, more than that, to make policy on an international level so as to have peace. Friend, those who are speaking are policy makers, or more, or more particularly, these are Christian magistrates who are speaking. These are those who are ruling heads of the nations. And what the text teaches us then, friend, is that Christian rulers will legislate according to God's word. Now, without being too detailed, friend, allow me to say what I'm not saying. The text is not teaching us that these nations are going to try to replicate ancient Israel's policies. 
They're not trying to reenact the state, the ancient state of, of Israel. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith rightfully tells us that, that God gave sundry judicial laws, not obliging any now, further than the general equity thereof may require. In other words, they're not trying to revive, and God's word never commands Christian magistrates to revive the Jewish state in toto. But it is important for us to understand what this general equity means. What it means for nations and for Christian magistrates to take the law of God and to apply it. General equity means that they will take all that belongs to the law of God today in this new covenant economy and they will make it that which governs their legislation and policies. It will agree with a moral law. It will agree with God's new covenant dealings. A friend, <coughs> I suppose it's important for me to say, uh, just very briefly, that general equity uh, is often misunderstood, I think, in our circles. The Westminster Divines, our forebears in Scotland as well, they never intended that to, to mean in a narrow sense uh, simply what is given to us in the law of nature or what is given to us even more narrowly in the light of nature. Uh, for instance, friend, if you were to ask one of the Westminster divines, does that command, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, does that still bind, does that belong to the general equity, to a man, they would say yes. And so, friend, what you and I are to understand here is that, that the Christian magistrate will be very careful to apply in a very thorough way the law of God, in a way that accords again with the new covenant, with God's dealings with the nations today. My friend, it should be so. The civil magistrate, as we read in Romans 13, the legitimate magistrate is a terror to good works, and is not a terror to good works, but to the evil. And so, friend, what we find here are civil magistrates seeking to do that very thing under the light of Scripture to rule in such a way. And I don't have time, friend, this evening. But I think it's important for the purpose of our text to understand what that looks like. Uh, to put it in a negative way, friend, that means that these magistrates are going to legislate against rebellion, both in homes and in state. They're not going to glorify it. It also means that they're going, of course, to legislate against euthanasia and abortion and to deal with those who engage in such things as murderers. And by the way, to deal with murderers as they ought to. It also means, friend, that they're not going to allow the perversion that you and I see on the streets around us, even to the point of not allowing no-fault divorce. They'll make legislations against prodigality, wasteful spending, sloth, and so forth. Friend, all of that belongs to the civil magistrate's remit. But we need to go far further. A Christian magistrate endeavoring obedience to God will also legislate against idolatry. No, he cannot see into the minds and into the hearts of his subjects. But friend, he will be keen to keep away those who are spiritual terrorists away from his subjects. He will eliminate proselytizing those who would spread heresy and blasphemy. He'll punish church truancy. He will make laws against Sabbath breaking. 
Friend, all of that belongs to the civil magistrate. All of that belongs to the civil magistrate according to the word of God and even according to our own national vows. And what our text tells us is that these Christian magistrates are longing to be so instructed by the word of God to cause their legislation to look thus. I give you that picture, friend, for a basic reason. I know what I've said is controversial, but I give you that picture for a basic reason this evening. Because what Isaiah here promises are wonderful things, things that should encourage the people of God. But when you really come down, when you really begin to analyze what Isaiah is saying, how many Christians really desire this? How many really see the Christian civil magistrate in this way and say this is a good thing today? Friend, we ask not, we have not because we ask not. And that should be remembered in this case as well. But thirdly and finally, we come to the implementation of those policies. We're told in verse 4 that God, he will judge among the nations and he shall rebuke many people. Or to recognize, friend, that this is through the church that he will do this. Uh, he teaches through the church, as this text teaches. He sends his law through this church. <clears throat> and principally, friend, you're to, you're to recognize that as the church possesses no magisterial power, it is primarily through the preaching of his word and the spirit of God accompanying that preaching that he will so rule. And this is the effect. They shall beat their sores into plowshares. And this is the blessing. Neither shall they learn war anymore. What this teaches us, friend, is then that Christian rulers in this time will enact godly policies. In other words, they're not only going to legislate, but they will actuate what they have legislated. What this means then for the church, friend, is that the civil magistrate will exalt her as he must. We see that in verse 2. He will acquiesce as she is lifted high. He will heed her preaching in verse 4. And friend, you recognize that this is part and parcel of what the church is always to crave. He says to Jeremiah, I have set thee this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, to build and to plant. We don't mean that in a popish way, of course. The civil magistrate is not, is not overruled in any magisterial way by the church. What he means very pointedly is that the church of God will be lifted high. That nations will hear her. Friend, even in Isaiah 49, you find that the kings of the nations will support her. Kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and and their queens thy nursing mothers. Friend, this is what you and I are to be praying for. This is what you and I are to be longing for. Do we set the bar so low? Is it just the case that we long that the civil magistrate will leave us alone? The word of God says we must go much further and pray for much more. Secondly, friend, this means that they will enact those godly policies. That they will seek wholesale to do that which God would require of Christian magistrates. And thirdly, friend, we recognize the, the, the blessing that flows. Here you have a picture of peace. Here you have the nations at last at rest. 
They do not learn war anymore, says the prophet. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That's what we will sing in Psalm 33. What we are told in this text is that the nations, in plural, will know that blessing. They will know peace from on high as they submit to the Prince of Peace. I want to close this evening, uh, friend, by, by just making a couple of notes by way of application. Friend, first of all, this is a text that is to encourage us. This is given to the church of God to to remind us that, that those wicked regimes in the world, they have an expiry date. One day, friend, you and I will see those regimes topple, and we will see nations submit to Christ's scepter, and that should thrill our souls. And it should thrill our souls because a text like this reminds us that that won't be nominal that they will really endeavor obedience to the Son of God as nations. And what does that mean positively? I've said to you negatively what these nations will legislate against. What does that look like positively? It means that these ones who are speaking our text, Christian magistrates, that they will be in earnest to procure not only the temporal safety and well-being of their subjects, but to set their subjects under those means that will do their souls real good. We don't know what that's like to live in such a society where the magistrate is really concerned about the everlasting well-being of their subjects. We don't know what it's like, for instance, friend, to live in a time whenever godliness is lifted high, promoted in every sphere, even rewarded as the civil magistrate may. We don't know what it's like for a minister and a magistrate to work shoulder to shoulder to advance the interests of Christ. But Isaiah tells us plainly that will one day come. One day, friend, as Revelation 20 tells us, Christ will rule in his saints over all of the nations in such a way. It's only the wicked, friend, who believe that wickedness will always and forever be stable. The people of God in a text like this are encouraged to remember there is an expiry date. God has set the bounds and God is faithful to bring it to an end. That's the encouraging element of this text and may we hold on to that. But the second element I want to set before you is by way of challenge. I'm not preaching this text in China, Japan, India. Friend, you and I, we reside in nations that have had the light of God's word for centuries. And then for 400 years, friend, we have been under very specific national vows to see these very things in these lands. In the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant, friend, these lands were bound, our magistrates bound to pursue the very things that the Christian magistrates in Isaiah 2 crave. It's not a small thing, friend, for ourselves in such a context to read this text. 
Because it, first of all, it should cause us to grieve that loss. I know, friend, I know intimately that those days were not days of perfection. But I know that in New England, in Scotland, in Ireland, and in England, there was a general expectation, a real desire among the people of God, that the civil magistrate would first of all seek the interests of Christ. Whether he did so or not, of course, is another matter. But friend, can we even attain to that point? Where together as a church, we would be united in that desire. That we would even know how to pray together for those kinds of things. And then friend, if we contemplate what those national vows that we ourselves have renewed just a year and a half ago say, friend, how should we be grieved? We shall also with all faithfulness endeavor the discovery of all such as have been or shall be incendiaries, malignants, or evil instruments, hinderers of the reformation of religion, in such a way that they will be brought to public trial and receive condign punishment as the degree of their offenses shall require or deserve. Friend, that's, that, that's the vow that we renewed. Malignants, evil instruments, incendiaries. Friend, we don't, we don't bring them to a court of justice anymore. We make them leaders of the state. Do we grieve, friend, this deep fall? Do we grieve how little we resemble that picture we have in Isaiah 2? That covenant, the Solemn League and Covenant, also says that we will not give ourselves to a detestable indifference or neutrality in this cause, which so much concerneth the glory of God. Friend, our text encourages us to desire, crave, to pray, and even to labor toward those ends. We're under a national vow ourselves not to be given to neutrality in this cause. And so, friend, how are we doing? I said this text is certainly to encourage us, and it is, but it is also to drive us, especially we ourselves in these lands, to pray earnestly, to labor carefully, not to participate in the land's defections, to labor as much as we can within our stations for the very reformation that God has promised will come. For may this text drive us to pursue Christ's interest in these ways. May it be, friend, that this is our great desire. That we would see the gospel, that we would see it touch every aspect of life. From the most local level in the soul to the highest level in the nations. May that be our desire, our great prayer. And may it be, friend, that even in our labors here in Lockland, we would have that ever set before us. Amen. Oh,